Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On today's episode of Autism Stories, Grace Ogden Parker joins me to discuss various forms of ableism, the importance of lived experience, and being a parent. Now, during this episode, you may hear Grace's child in the background, so if you hear any happy noises, that's why. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Grace, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I wanted to start off our conversation and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Okay, well, you know, I I didn't know that I was autistic growing up. That's happened to a lot of us, it turns out. Several years ago, uh, when I was about 29, or so a friend of mine and I were talking and I don't know how we got on the topic but I was explaining to him how my thoughts work because I don't think in any kind of like language and I tried to describe it and I didn't do a very good job of it it's definitely not the way that I actually think but when I was describing it to him as sort of like a combination of pictures and code he was but a little more abstract than that, he told me that it sounded like autism. I had never heard someone say that before about autistic people thinking in those ways. And in fact, it had been a long time since I heard anything about autism at that point in time, because I was out of college and it had been a while since I'd taken any psychology, which I didn't, you know, get a degree in. So it's not like I have a deep knowledge from college, but the medical model, especially back then, was so limited that I never really saw myself in that description that they had in my psychology class. So it didn't ever dawn on me, you know. We even we took a class called Abnormal Psychology, which in and of itself is the most ableist title for a, <laughs> a course I've ever heard in my entire life. Right. But it was part of, I was taking a sociology degree, and, and it was part of my criminal justice concentration. So I took abnormal psychology and I find these things fascinating. So I actually really like psychology, even though at this point I understand better how it's not exactly accurate. Anyways, diverging just a tiny bit there. I'm back. They told us at the beginning of the class, you know, in this class, we're going to go over a lot of psychological disorders and so-called disorders and people almost always self-diagnose themselves with multiple things, try to keep it down to one or two for the semester. I probably had some thoughts here and there, but that one just did not strike me, and it's because they had the outdated information. So when he mentioned that to me, it was just like this light bulb, and I started looking into it, I started reading everything I could, and I got online, and I started following, like, one of the first people I followed was 
it's neurodivergent rebels. They was one of the big turning points for me understanding my own self better. And but it was several years before I got formally diagnosed because I had a kid and I had a lot going on, and so I ended up waiting for that to even try to get that. And then I got it when I was 37. That's how I ended up with a super late diagnosis. Nobody can recognize these things off of old information, you know? You know, it's interesting you talked about um, abnormal psych because I took that class as well in college. And I don't know, it was so long ago, but it was like an eight or 10 week class and maybe even longer. Um, And I remember like, so it's eight or 10 weeks and in, in only one class did they talk about autism and it was like about five minutes long so it's just just kind of right yeah they just don't even go over it yeah hope that was that was where i was at too they barely even mentioned it like they had (laughs) it in there and it was just like this short little snippet of what they think it is from like the very beginning of when they started to them that far back was their thought process and and then moved on and all I thought was, well, I'm not a tiny male child who can't speak or learn or do anything, which is what they were kind of alluding to with those things. And I was like, so check that one off, not that one. <laughs> Little did I know, right? Right. Recently on social media, um, specifically LinkedIn, I joined a wonderful group that you created called the Autistic Lived Experiences. So I'm just, you know, just kind of thinking about the origin of that. Why was it important for you to create such a group? Well, it's it's new, so there's not a lot going on in there yet, but I just, I thought that it was important to, I always want to amplify the voices of autistics, not just my own, of course, all autistic voices, I think that our lived experiences are more accurate and completely valid, much more accurate than than the voices of those who speak for us and really just speak over us. So I wanted to kind of create like this space where we could kind of share with each other our thoughts and if anybody wants to give feedback or not, but just I know that we all have a lot that we want to put out there, but we don't always feel safe to, or we don't always feel heard or something like that. So I was thinking that it would be good for us to have like a group where we can just kind of info dump on each other and kind of like build off of that. And so that's kind of the goal. I threw some of my blogs that I'd already posted on LinkedIn in there just to kind of get the ball rolling. And then a couple of people have posted a couple of things. So it's very new. I hope that it kind of picks up and and some people get into sharing their thoughts and and we can build a community there. Now, talking about lived experience, you were on the board of the Autistic Women's Alliance. Can you talk about uh, that experience and how Autistic Women's Alliance is helpful to autistic people of marginalized experiences. Autistic Women's Alliance, it says women's in the title, but it's actually for all marginalized genders. And it's so anything that's not 
this mail, I suppose. But changing a, a name of an organization is far more complicated than just explaining that. So that's that's where we go with that. We we make sure that it's included on the logo, but we didn't change the name. But I think it's pretty great because it's designed to, well, in the long run, the goal is to have mentors that are autistic peers as opposed to people, autistic people being mentored by non-autistics, which is the norm that you see in employment. Carrie Hall, who started it and who is still running it, and I think she's amazing, Carrie essentially decided what I was just describing to you just now, that was kind of her vision was that you always see in employment, whether it's pre-employment or within the company, once you're hired, that autistics get mentoring from non-autistics. And she thought, well, we can do better than that because that's not a super helpful approach according to Carrie. And I, and I kind of agree because I think that it spends a lot more time on how to change us versus how to help us support our own needs and, and succeed. And she wanted to start an organization that autistic people will mentor other autistic people to help them in various stages of employment, whether it be gaining employment, working within their employment and all of the stuff in between. And so that's, that's the great mission that they've got going there. And my favorite part of the whole thing while I was there is that they have a monthly coffee chat, which is the first half hour or so is like a presentation that kind of sets up the topic and gives everybody kind of a baseline to start with a little bit of information about what the topic is is and what the meaning of things are and stuff like that and then it opens up to discussion with everybody who's attending and so we get to kind of share like i said share that community of ideas and i think that that's pretty great because it's a nice safe space in the coffee chats for autistic people to talk to each other without there being people who are claiming to be there for us, but, but are just fighting against us, you know? So it's, it's one of those situations where they, we can just speak about our experiences and kind of support each other, but it's not a support group. So <laughs> it just kind of feels like it because it's so supportive. So that was my favorite part of that. And we did do a intersectional panel in August. We did that. We hosted that. And that was pretty, pretty great. And it was a fun ride, but it was a bit too much for me for that time frame. And we kind of, I kind of want to lean into other areas of my advocacy, whereas that was a very focused area and it's not the only area I want to work on. So I kind of just stepped back and made some room for some new people to pop in and they're building that up and they're getting, their plans are moving forward. It, it looks like it's going to be really great. Hmm. 
Now, talking about other areas of advocacy, I read a really well written and I would say thorough blog you wrote about ableism and the uh, subtypes of ableism that maybe people don't think about as often. So what are some of the subtypes that you think people should be more familiar with? Well, just like there are microaggressions for race, there are microaggressions for ableism, and that falls under a category that's called benevolent ableism, where it can be it can seem like you're being nice, but really you're not, or it can seem like you're not being disrespectful, but you really are. And it doesn't just have microaggressions in there. Like a lot of times autistic people get infantilized. People think that they're being super, super nice to us, but really they're just like treating us like babies. So that can, that can be an issue as well. And so that's an area that I think is important for people to pay attention to is that ableism isn't just like straight up the worst of the worst that is just completely obvious to people a lot of times it can be that wanting to help and really you're harming by trying to help it's a lot of the if you treat someone like they're high functioning autistic then you take away their support and you invalidate their experiences. But if you treat someone like they're low functioning autistic, you're taking away their agency and their competency. And the real reality is, is that there's not as huge a gap as people think there is. And high and low functioning is, is a myth, but there's not that huge of a gap per se. I think that Certain supports can be more significant for some autistics than others, particularly if there is limited access to language. But as far as high and low functioning, it, do, it doesn't even exist. We just, sometimes it's high or low masking or it's high or low support, but really it doesn't do anybody any good to kind of lean on the scale of high or low. It's just a matter of individuals. We're all individual people. Another big one that is important is internalized ableism. A lot of people will lean into, well, this autistic said this or did that or has this perspective. And so obviously we're not wrong to think that. Well, actually, <laughs> I have seen some out there. I saw a movie. I'm not going to name it right now, but I saw a movie that was made back in 2001 by an autistic person. And it, if you don't know much about it, you might think it was being kind and being positive and everything like that. But then you sit there and you listen and the parents are talking about it all like it's super negative and just all of the rhetoric about it was, it was super, super negative. And I've seen, some of the people call them the OG, the original autistic advocates in the beginning were also following what was understood back then. And then that got internalized into them. And it took a really long time for any of them to kind of see a different view. And, and internalized ableism, I, I kind of equate that to like Stockholm syndrome 
where you're relating to your captors or your abusers and their perspective. And so you start to adopt their point of view and you become an advocate for their ways. That's how I view internalized ableism is, is a very similar way that society has indoctrinated us with these very harmful views of ourselves and of others who are like us or unlike us for that matter. And it can be really, really damaging both to the person who has the internalized ableism and to the ones that they spread it to, spread their words to, you know. And then I think there's one more that I think is pretty critical before I get into systemic ableism because that's going to be my biggie. But one more little piece is the concept of inspiration porn. And I think that that one really plays a huge role because people think that they're being super nice in that. And it falls into the benevolent category because people think that they're being very supportive, very positive. They're lifting people up. They're saying, oh, look at this amazing person. But the reality is, is that they're putting us on this pedestal solely because we've accomplished something very basic. I'm not saying it's never good to have representation of autistics doing great things, but do that for the doing great things and don't treat it like it's something that we had to overcome being autistic to do or that something super simple in life, just the most basic things of life, like getting a job, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, don't treat that like we're this huge inspiration. It is hard for autistics to get a job, but that is a systemic problem, not an autism problem. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that brings me to the systemic ableism, where it's just like any other major problem like patriarchy or colonialism or capitalism or racism. It's systemically based. It is in every type of policy, procedure, every organization, every society, it's deeply rooted and it is what is causing all the barriers. Being autistic isn't giving us, I mean, some pieces may have barriers, like if we do need access to language supports, that may be a barrier, but then we get language supports and and that helps us with that barrier. But the reality is, is that autistic people aren't inherently having these problems because we were born. We're having these problems because society is not built for us. It's built for what some people call neurotypicals. I like to call them the neuronormative because social norms and societal norms are based off of their neurotype. Whereas I would consider anyone anyone who most people will call neurodivergent because they're going off of neurodiversity rather than divergent because we didn't diverge we we've always been who we are i would say that that we are neuromarginalized that is the way i would look at it and that is part of the systemic ableism that we face in society i think if i keep talking i'm just going to go and go and go and go but i have a lot to say about ableism so i'm going to stop there because i have way too much to say about ableism and i could probably get way off track with it because I if you could ask my husband right now he would tell you I talk about ableism all the time I am obsessed with ableism 
it is my big, my big thing. I won't let go of. It's just right in there. Well, that's what podcasts are for to, to info dump, to talk. But it, it's understandable if you want to just stop right there. We could kind of move on from there. I think I might start to sound a little bit off kilter on the conversation. <laughs> you know, I might, I, it might seem like I'm just going off in weird branches if I, if I keep going. I think systemic ableism is a good spot to stop because that's the, that's the biggie. That's the one that everybody needs to really kind of realize that. Yeah. And the worst of it is, I am going to go on a little bit more. <laughs> it's some of the big autism charities that aren't really for us. And I'm not going to name any because there's, there's actually too many of them to name, which is sad, so sad. But also that I don't really have the means or desire to get sued. So I'll just say what their motives are and not who they are. Yeah. There are some big, big, big autism charities that have all the funding and all of the connections. And they have the ear of the politicians and they have the ear of the public and they, and they are manipulative and they can make people think that they are doing good. And then the reality is, is that they are doing, they're trying to eradicate us. They're trying to, at the very least, train it out of us once we're already here. But they're also, you know, trying to find ways to find out before we're even born so that they can prevent us from being born. Or they're trying to, to convince parents to be so distraught about us that the parents think that we're better off dead than being autistic. And just the ways that they feed this information to society really can perpetuate the worst kinds of harm for us. And, and then everybody thinks that they're the big saviors of us and they're not. And I, I would absolutely love to blast all of them, but I just, I just know better. Mm -hmm. I just know better. <laughs> Moving on from that, um, I think a critical role that you have is that you are a parent. Before we talk about that, you know, I wanted to talk about you being a board member for GoManda. They're a company that's created an app to teach autistic children, which I think projects like this are so important because far too often autistic children aren't taught in a way that works best for them. So what's been your experience in helping GoManda create an app that caters to the learning strengths of autistic children? Well, this board position is more of an advisory role rather than a working board like it was with Autistic Women's Alliance. So my role is a lot smaller. However, I connected with Celeste because she wanted to, to interview me and some other autistics for some training she was doing for educators about what our experiences were in school. And so I did that. And then when we were done, she said, you know, I really value your opinions and, and I think that it would be great to have you as maybe an advisory board member where you can look at this app and see if, what you think of it. And I was like, absolutely. And so basically what I've done so far with that is just kind of review what the learning is on that app and then give her a little bit of feedback. And then, of course, as I am a LinkedIn groupie, I live there. I had her add me 
as an admin for their page so I can invite people to follow it. So I'm, I'm trying to grow their following to get them more people involved. I think that, that they're on a good track with the, with the training program. It's got a different approach to how to teach children. I'm not sure how many adults it would apply to, but I think it's really geared more towards children anyways. And more likely, very young children from what I've seen on there, but she might be adding more later, I don't know. But you know, we add some more visual in and some more audio in and some more, just kind of combining those things. And I think that it was a pretty good little app. I tried it on my littlest one and he liked it. Um, I poked around more than just with him, but I think it's a great app. And I think Celeste is doing some great work in general with the way she's doing her trainings and stuff like that. She has some experience as a sister of someone with autism or someone who is autistic. I don't know how her sister identifies. That's all I know about that so far. Now, um, we talked about you a little bit earlier being a, a mom. And I'm always interested in people that that have roles that I don't have, so I'm not a parent, but um, I'm interested in kind of the, you know, you have your work life, but also you have your life as a parent. So how do you go about managing your work life while at the same time making sure your son gets his needs met? Well, I'm on my second kid now. He is, but he's the first one that I've, I've been home full time the entire time. So with my daughter, I, I was a single mom, so I had to work. And so she went to daycare a lot, but we still had evenings and weekends together, you know, the usual, all the usual stuff that all parents do. So it's, I was lucky to have the supports I had and everything was great. She is autistic and ADHD. So for me, I think the differences between us are in sensory experiences has been hard as a mom because I'm more of a sensory resistant is how I like to put it. <laughs> and she's always been like a very sensory expressive. And so finding a balance there was hard for a lot of years. Mostly I just forced myself to put up with it because you know, you're a mom and you just do that. My three-year-old son, I'm married now, and, and so it's two-parent household, and which is great. I think that it's so much better. <laughs> but I am working from home so that I can be his, I don't know, every, every little bit. You know, I'm, a, I'm his preschool. I'm his child care. I'm his mommy. It's challenging because there's a lot of things that that the daycare did for me the first time around that I just had to kind of support, you know, like potty training. They did most of that. They, they taught it because the other kids were going along with it too. You know, when there's a lot of kids involved, it's easier. Plus they were experienced at it, you know, and all I did was just kind of support it at home and do the same things they were doing. And this time around, I don't even remember how to do it. I'm terrible at it. But we're, we'll, we're getting there. We're working on it. We're getting there. But then, like, the preschooling thing is so much so much fun. And all of this 
just to say that, yes, I, I do work from home, but I did um, start my own business so that I could have flexibility and I do social media for businesses. So it's an extremely flexible job um, and it's just part time. So I can kind of, you know, go to the park whenever we need to go to the park or feed him whatever he needs or let him run around yelling. Funny sounds like right now. <laughs> He's very active. He's really into his balance bike right now, so he's just riding that around the house. Lastly, before we go, I hear you're in the process of writing a book, so I'd love to learn um, what what the heck this book is about and where are you are in, in the process. Well, let's say processes for sure. <laughs> I'm not done, that's for sure. I wrote a ton, and then I tried to get some people to read it, and they were like, that's really long. <laughs> Okay, sure. And then I went back and looked at it and I was like, you know, I need to kind of break this into two books because some of it is really just all advocacy stuff, like knowledge, like info dumping. And then some of it is like my personal experiences. And so like I kind of need to just like separate those out and have those be two separate things. And then from there, we'll kind of figure out what's what. I started pulling it apart. I'm not done pulling it apart. But I do know what I want to title one of them. I named it Call Me Autistic. It's a neurotype, not a disease. And I'm probably going to go on the um, advocacy one, which I think needs to be later. Even though it has the most information already, I think it needs to be later because I got to pull stuff out. Just like I said, I can't go naming names on here. I just, I got to pull some stuff out because... The advocate in me, the passionate advocate in me wants to call people out, and I just, it's not a good idea. So i got to pull some stuff out. I also have to update some things because a lot of stuff has been ongoing and changing, you know, so I need to do that. That's probably going to take longer. So I'm trying to decide what to, what to name the one that's going to be my, about my experiences one. I almost want to put the call me autistic on that one, but then... I feel like it ties better with the info dumping because I talk a lot about, I don't want to assume that you've heard about, but I don't want to assume that you haven't heard about the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Mm -hmm. You know anything about that? A little bit, yeah. Okay, so I, when I was researching for my book, I came across that. I don't know how I didn't know about it before that, but I didn't. So when I was researching for my book for more information, I just like, became obsessed with that. I just went on a deep dive on that because, well, the ADA, the American Disabilities Act, did a lot for us. There's so many areas that it didn't cover for us that I feel like the CRPD does. And and I know that Obama, when he was president, signed it, but we can't get Congress to ratify it, and that's driving me crazy. I keep writing letters, and I'm a bit obsessed with the CIPD. That would that would take us hours for me to unravel. Uh, <laughs> we were to that. <laughs> but that is that is in my advocacy half of the book. <laughs> so, so that one's pretty pretty lengthy. It has that and a lot of other advocacy stuff that that you know us research type minds can really find a lot of information. Well, I don't know who the people were that that said it was too long, but for someone like myself where any book is 
pretty much too long for me to finish. Uh, <laughs> I guess really it's it's that. in your perspective. They didn't they didn't really say that because they're both uh, neuronormative minds, so they didn't really say it like that. They just kind of went like, "Yeah, um, interesting, but you skimmed it." <laughs> I put two and two together. I know what they meant. Yeah. It's yeah. super long. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of info dumping. Well, I look forward to one day whenever those are completed, and I will attempt to read them. <laughs> Maybe I'll try to make an audio version or something. That would be helpful. Even with audio versions, I don't know. It's just tough for me to go from beginning to end. I think my attention span is as I've gotten older, is not nearly as good as what I think it is. Well, Grace, it was wonderful um, to talk with you. Thanks so much for the conversation today. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks so much to Grace for the conversation. At Autism Personal Coach, we provide customized coaching for autistics. All of our coaches are either autistic or autistic selected for their commitment to trauma-informed and neurodiversity-affirming strategies. They deeply understand many of the things that Grace was talking about, such as ableism, also things as, such as burnout, sensory needs, executive functioning, and the importance of engaging in your special interests. If you're interested in learning more about our coaching, please visit autismpersonalcoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, if you could tell a friend foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.